Good morning, Central Bible Church. It's great to be with you and an honor to, to share from God's Word. So my name is Ashua. I serve as the missionary in residence at Central Bible Church here. That means that I serve on staff, but my primarily my work is outside of the church walls, working with the refugee and immigrant community. And just as a side plug, if you want to find out more about how you can get involved in missions at CB, or in particular, how you can engage more with our immigrant and refugee neighbors, I would love to talk to you. Also, if you have a gift of hospitality and have a heart for our missionaries that we support and seek to love and bless that are serving overseas, also please come talk to me. We can use all the help that we can get just seeking to be a blessing uh, to the missionaries that we support. So with that said, we're going to be talking about Pentecost and the Holy Spirit. And so as we begin, I want to start with kind of a disclaimer and a bit of a dedication uh, to a friend of mine. So some of you may know a, uh, a man named Dan Grabiel. Perhaps if you've been around Multnomah for a while, or if just the whole mutual friend Facebook thing, you may have seen posts about his memorial, that he, he died uh, rather, rather tragically and unexpectedly just a couple weeks ago. Uh, and he had a memorial service last Saturday, and so that's where I was. And it really was a, both a powerful and an encouraging time to just remember this quote that really, I think, exemplifies his life. It's just the idea that there's only one life to live, which will soon be passed, and only what's done for Christ will last. If you didn't know him, he was a kind of a, he was a youth pastor, uh, actually a junior high youth pastor. But, and if, you, if you've ever been to a junior high youth group meeting, they, they tend to get a little wild and crazy and and he was one of those youth pastors that didn't know how to turn it off, right? He just thought, it's always youth group. It's always a bunch of junior high stuff. So he was a little wild, a little crazy. Um, and so it's a story that connects with uh, where we're going today. So we were students at Multnomah together. We had a group of, of friends. And we were, right, the conservative Bible college students. We, right, we went to the school that you go to to read the Bible and learn the Bible. And, but there was this really interesting kind of like prophecy stuff going on in, this, in the charismatic movement, particularly in a place of, in Kansas City. And we kind of looked at it from a distance. We're like, what's going on there? Let's go check it out, right? Let's go see. And they had a free conference. So a group of Multnomah students road tripped down to this big conference for college students in Kansas City with this particular charismatic Pentecostal group, and, and it had quite the kind of a broad spectrum of voices from that community and tradition. And so we were there, and just imagine it, a stadium, about 10,000 people, large stadium, right? And one of the main leaders in this movement is, is speaking, and he kind of goes up. He's actually preaching on Joel, and he like reads a passage from Joel, and then I think he pretty much closes his Bible and then talks for an hour. Now, I'm not going to judge whether I agree with what he said or not, but, but he wasn't really preaching the Bible. Like, he, he had some thoughts and beliefs and convictions, and he was sharing them based on his own authority and his own experience. And so, my wonderful friend, Dan Grabiel, um, if, if you knew him, he had a voice, right? He, he, would, he didn't have an indoor voice. It was only an outdoor voice. And he would have this thing. He would push this button on his neck, and he's like, oh, I'm supposed to turn off the subwoofer. He just had this crazy booming voice and was a close talker. And I'm an introvert and I'm, I'm, I live with this guy in a small house. It was difficult, but I loved him. And so anyway, he had a loud voice. And in the middle of this man's sermon, right, in this stadium of 10,000 people, he stands up and at the top of his lungs, he yells out, preach the Bible! And we're all like, we don't know this guy. Nope, he's not with us, <laughs> right? And, and the, the, the kind of, the idea was is that this guy really wasn't preaching the Bible. He was preaching some ideas that he had, but he wasn't preaching the Bible. And so that's just a little story. Now, and the last connecting point uh, that is the disclaimer for this message is uh, we had a, um, kind of at the end of our Multnomah graduation, uh, we did, I think it was like, it was like an affirmation kind of encouragement circle, 
where we were just encouraging each other and praying for each other. And, and, and he said this, like, benediction to me, right, a blessing. I'm not sure if it was imprecatory, more of a, a curse or not. But he says to me, he says, may all your charismatic friends think you're too conservative. And may all your conservative friends think you're too charismatic. <laughs> I'm like, thanks, Dan. Appreciate that. Um, so I think that will be the case this morning. Uh, he might... It might just be a prophecy that gets fulfilled. We'll see. Okay, so that's a disclaimer. Um, so here we go. We're going to get go- going in this text. I'm going to start with an important principle of biblical interpretation, and it's basically this. We don't truly know what a scripture means until we actually know how to apply it to our lives. Okay, you, you don't really know what it means until you actually know how to apply it. Another way to to say that is, interpretation apart from application is just pontification, okay? Interpretation, interpretation without application is just pontification, and we like pontificating, right, about our ideas, but, but how do we actually apply it to our lives? And that, with acts in mind, is actually kind of difficult, isn't it, right? So this is a a historical account of the early church, right? This narrative of how the Holy Spirit filled the church and, and these missionary accounts. How do we approach the book of Acts? How do we apply it to our lives? But then how do we also not get bogged down with that question and that debate so that we never actually get around to applying it? Right? There's, there's two different errors, right? You run too quick to application. Woohoo, let's just be like Paul and Peter. Or you stand back and say, ah, there's a whole lot of debate about that, so I'll just stand on the sidelines and avoid it all. Right? Um, how do we avoid both, the, both those errors? So my first answer is, let's pray for help. Okay? So let's pray as we get going. Oh, Lord Jesus, we do need your help. And we've sung this morning already a desire for your Holy Spirit to be present and active in our lives, to fill us in new ways. And we do ask for that. And I ask your help as I speak. Would you help me be faithful to your word? Would you help us to dig deeply, to to ask hard questions, and then really seek to apply and seek to be transformed by your word? We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So you're going to need your Bibles this morning because we're going to spend a lot of time in the text. And I want you to see and test what I'm saying, okay? So Pentecost is a convergence of multiple streams of biblical prophecy through the Hebrew Scriptures, right? So think of this picture of if you think of your your favorite big northwest river, right? Maybe it's the Willamette or the... uh, the, the Columbia, and there's different streams, right, that can flow into a river. And then when these streams combine together, they become this, like, torrential flood, okay? And so there's three themes that I believe come together at Pentecost. There is this, the, uh, this theme of the, the stream of God's temple worship, and then the stream of God's prophetic revelation, and then finally the stream of God's kingdom mission. And these weave and flow throughout the Hebrew scriptures, and they come together in the person of Jesus. Another way you can look at it is the prophet, the priest, the king, right? The, the stream of, of prophetic revelation, the stream of the temple worship of the priesthood, and the stream of this kingdom of God as king that he will establish. They all come together in the person and work of Jesus, Right, I want you to see this first before we get into our actual text. Look at Acts 2, 32 and 33. This continues on Peter's message. He says this. He says, This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all, we all are witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this you yourselves are seeing and hearing. So here's the picture. All these streams are coming together in the person of Jesus, and then he pours out that torrential flood on his people. 
okay? It's centered on Jesus, it honors Jesus, but it, and it pours out from him, and they all converge. And I want us to walk through particularly the two themes of God's temple worship and this prophetic revelation. And you imagine that, you know, that image of the three, the three uh, chord strand. I believe they interweave around that third theme of God's kingdom mission as the, the temple worship accomplishes the mission of God's glory being displayed. And as this prophetic revelation of the, revelation of the will of God weaves together this theme of the nations hearing God's word and God's word going to the nations. So here's the first stream, the stream of God's temple worship. Okay, look at, let's look at Acts 2.17. We'll start there. And in the last days it shall be God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Now, there's something interesting going on there. I want you to, to hold your finger there. So, right, you can see in your, the little letter in a like, little uh, superscript, in your footnote, it should tell you this is where this is getting quoted from, right? So you can look down, and it says, Joel 2, 28 to 32. Now, keep your finger in Acts. I want you to turn to Joel, all right? So it's the second of the minor prophets, Right, you got Daniel, Hosea, Joel. Okay, we're going to go to 2.28. 2.28 says this, And it shall come to pass afterward that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. I will, it shall come to pass afterwards. Go back to Acts 2. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Do you see the difference? Joel says it shall come to pass. Peter says, and in the last days it shall be. Now, if you study the use of the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's, it's, it's really exciting and surprising, right? There's interesting things that happen. So what is he doing? Is he misquoting it? Is he changing it for his own purposes? No, actually, the theme of the temple, Peter wants to make it absolutely explicitly clear what God is doing here. And so there's a hidden quote within the Joel quote. Okay, so if, so, right, we're reading our New Testament. It's in the Greek language. Often, right, those um, New Testament believers and the Jews there, they sometimes read the Hebrew Old Testament, but often they read a translation of the Hebrew Old Testament called the Septuagint. It was a Greek translation. And if you do a little word search, actually a full grammar search of the exact words, Greek words used in Acts 2.17, and said, where else does that appear in the whole Greek Old Testament? You know what you find? He's not throwing this out of nowhere and just kind of pulling it out. He's actually making an exact quote of another prophecy. And so if, if you knew your Bible well and you read that, you'd say, wow. He's, he's bringing Joel together with Isaiah chapter 2. So, turn there. Look back. Right? Isaiah chapter 2. And your, your English translation may or may not give the exact same wording that you see in, in Acts chapter 2, but in the original, it's the exact same words and same word order. And this is that prophecy in, in Isaiah chapter 2. It shall come to pass in the latter days, there it is, that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be lifted up above the hills and all the nations shall flow to it. And you see that in, in Pentecost, right? You see that in Acts 1.8 where he says, you will be my witnesses, the gospel will go out to all the nations. And then you see all the, the Jewish diaspora peoples from and he, uh, last week we saw the map up here that they came from all the corners of that known world. They were that picture of the nations coming in, right? All right, shall come to pass. The mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest mountain, shall be lifted up above the hills. All the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob that he may teach us his ways, that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law, or the teaching, and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. You see that? 
And so he overlaps this picture of the house of God, the very temple of God being lifted up and all the nations streaming to it. Now, there's so much that can be said about this theme of the temple, of God's presence. But just, just a little, little hint, it goes back to the garden, right? So in the garden, God established that he loves to dwell with his people. He creates a beautiful sanctuary, right? A temple, a place of worship where God's people could dwell with him in peace. Hebrew uses the word shalom. And you see there's wholeness in relationship with God, with other people. The man and woman had harmony together. They were naked. There was no shame. You see that there, there's wholeness in relationship with themselves, right? There's no guilt. There's no shame. There's no sickness. There's no death. And there's, there's wholeness in relationship with creation. Right? He says, this is, this is the garden, out there is the wilderness, go out, fruit, be fruitful, multiply, and cultivate. Steward and cultivate and make the wilderness into the garden. Take the very sanctuary and temple of God and bring it out into the wilderness, into the world. And so you read this theme throughout, and if you ever noticed, as you read about the tabernacle in the book of Exodus, or you read about the temple right, in, in the book of Kings and Chronicles, there's all this imagery of fruit. You ever wonder why there's pomegranates in the temple, in the tabernacle? It's supposed to bring us back to the garden. It's supposed to say, this is what it was meant to be. This is, right? So the, the garden, we're, we can't go back there because of our shame, because we had turned from God. And so then God then brings the garden to us. He, he says, I will dwell with you. But there has to be a protection, right? There has to be walls. There has to be special access only for the priests, only for those set apart and holy to enter that sanctuary again. And something happens. We see it in Pentecost, and we see it a couple other times. So turn with me to Exodus, okay? This is the dedication of that tabernacle, of that, that place where God says, I'm going to dwell. It's the very end of the book of Exodus, okay? Chapter 40, and that last page in the book of Exodus. Verse 34 says this. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. And Moses was not able to enter the tent of meeting because the cloud settled on it, and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. Hmm. There's, a, there's a glory, there's a cloud settling in, in the tabernacle. Now turn again, or turn forward to 1 Kings, Okay. So we're going to now see the filling of the, the temple that Solomon dedicates. 1 Kings chapter 8, verses 6 through 13. Then the priests brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord to its place in the inner sanctuary of the house, in the most holy place, underneath the wings of the cherubim. For the cherubim spread out their wings over the place of the ark, so that the cherubim overshadowed the ark and its poles. Skip ahead to verse 10. And when the priest came out of the holy place, a cloud filled the house of the Lord, so that the priest could not stand to minister because of the cloud, for the glory of the Lord filled the house of the Lord. And then one more. Turn to 2 Chronicles 7, 1. And then you're going to see even more clearly the connection to Pentecost. 2 Chronicles 7, 1. As soon as Solomon finished his prayer, fire came down from heaven and consumed the burnt offering and the sacrifices. And the glory of the Lord filled the temple. And the priests could not enter the house of the Lord because the glory of the Lord filled the Lord's house. When all the people of Israel saw the fire come down and the glory of the Lord on the temple, they bowed down with their faces to the ground on the pavement and worshiped and gave thanks to the Lord, saying, For he is good, for his steadfast love endures forever. Do you see it? So in Pentecost, right, it says, right, it says that there was a, a sound of a rushing wind. It says that fire fell down. 
on God's people. This is a picture of the very presence of God, the house of God, no longer being confined to a building and to four walls, and no longer being mediated through these, these special appointed leaders. This is the presence of God, the temple of God, coming down and consuming his people. That fire falling on the offering, filling the temple, filling you and you, and you. That's the temple of God. Come then to dwell with his people. I find it amazing. It says that Moses couldn't enter, that the priests couldn't enter. It doesn't mention that in Pentecost, right? No, God's people were there basking in his presence. We can enter into it. And so this stream of God's temple comes together at Pentecost. It's fulfilled. And you know, in Mark 11, right, Jesus cleans out the temple and he says, right, quoting the the Old Testament scripture, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. That that temple was never meant to be set aside just for the people of Israel, but rather a house of prayer for all nations. And we see that in Acts, that, that the walls are just blown apart and broken down so the nations can then stream into that house. So that question of application, right? What, is it, what does that mean? It means is that absolutely central to our identity as believers, as, as New Testament, New Covenant believers, is, is that worship defines our identity, right? You may have heard it said that worship is the fuel and goal of missions, Right, that we are a worshiping people. Worship guides and motivates us. This delightful obedience in who Jesus is. And that, that, that work of salvation that God has accomplished, of, that goes back to that picture of the garden. That it's holistic. Right? The idea of calling on the name of the Lord is not just uh, a spiritual theological transaction. But that now we are the priests ministering this new covenant. That we actually get to cultivate the wilderness and bring the very presence of God into our workplaces, into our schools, into our families and homes and and minister that worship and call others into sharing that worship. That's the first stream. God's temple worship that's being fulfilled here at Pentecost. Now here's the second one. The second one is God's prophetic revelation. So if you look at Acts 2, right, starting in, uh, after verse 14, right, and he begins his message, and then verse 17 he starts to quote Joel. But like I said, there's more going on than meets the eye, right? So Peter is quoting Joel. But did you know that Joel was quoting something else? And this, we want to trace back to see that, that root and that, that first source of that stream of God's prophetic revelation and his will for that revelation being poured out on his people. So turn with me to Numbers chapter 11. Usually I would just put all these texts on the screen, but I think it's healthy for us to get used to sticking our finger in the text. Numbers 11, uh, verse 27. So, the context is, right, the people of God complaining and whining about not having meat. And, And Moses is freaking out and he's having a bad day and... No one's listening to him, and he's like, that's it, God, I'm over this. I don't, want, I don't want this job anymore. Pick someone else. Let's pick up in verse 27. Uh, sorry, no, verse, numbers 11. Let's do 24. So Moses went out and told the people the words of the Lord, and he gathered 70 men of the elders of the people and placed them around the tent. Then the Lord came down in the cloud and spoke to him and took some of the spirit that was on him 
and put it on the 70 elders. And as soon as the Spirit rested on them, they prophesied, but they did not continue doing it. Now two men remained in the camp, one named Eldad and the other named Medad, and the Spirit rested on them. They were among those registered, but they had not gone out to the tent. And so they prophesied in the camp, "Uh uh-oh, unauthorized prophecy, right? You were supposed to be at the tent. You're doing it among the people. We see this again and again in that old covenant, the separation. No, this revelation, this special office needs to be separate from the people. And here are these, peop- these, these guys prophesying, speaking God's word among the people. And a young man ran and told Moses, Eldad and Medad are prophesying in the camp. And Joshua, the son of Nun, the assistant of Moses from his youth, said, My Lord Moses, stop them! But Moses said to him, Are you jealous for my sake? Now listen to his heart and his desire. Would that all the Lord's people were prophets, that the Lord would put his spirit on them. And Moses and the elders of the Israel returned to the camp. Would that all God's people were prophets. Would that God's spirit would fall on all of them. You hear that? I believe Moses was prophesying. And Joel picks that up. Right? Now let's go back to Acts. Joel picks it up. He says this. And in the last days it shall be, God declares, that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh, and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy. So this is the fulfillment of the desire that all of God's people would hear and understand God's heart and then communicate it and proclaim it and make it known. Right? You want that? Do you want to know that? Do you want to see that? I do. Right? And it's not just that more people will do that. Right? It won't just be the 70. It'll be 120. Right? It's not just that more will do it. But rather that... The prophetic will characterize this whole new age, this whole new covenant, and they will enjoy this prophetic spirit given to communicate God's praises to the nations. And it's not just, right, a theological point to debate, but a vital experience to be pursued, to be known, enjoyed, and cultivated. Right? Interpretation, apart from application, is just pontification. It's something to be pursued and cultivated and enjoyed. So, a couple things as we get into more of the, the, some of the sticking points of these issues. So, Jesus, all right, oh, we, we read that scripture uh, in Acts 2, that the Spirit fell on him, and then he then poured it out, right? So, he is the prophet, priest, and king, the fulfillment of those three offices, and those streams come together on him, and then he pours out those gifts. So he alone is the high priest. We read that in Hebrews, right? He alone has full access into the presence of God that then he grants to us. He alone holds the office of prophet, the big P, prophet. He alone is the very word of God. He alone reveals God's word, and he has appointed that authority then to his apostles who were eyewitnesses to his resurrection, who he gave that task to, right? And then he alone is king. He alone rules with all authority. And so it all comes together in Jesus. He holds that office of prophet, priest, and king. But does that negate the fact that it says here that if you have the spirit of Jesus, if you have experienced this reality as a part of the new covenant, that you will prophesy? Or that, uh, as the Revelation says, right, the spirit of Jesus is the spirit of prophesy, a prophecy that you will have this spirit of prophecy? So what's it actually look like? Right? What does it look like for God's people today to walk out this promise in this picture of the new covenant community? So 
There's lots of questions. There's lots of things that could be discussed and a lot to learn. So, praise God, we're going to be in Acts probably for a long time, right? We were in Mark for quite a while. So, we're going to take some time through Acts. And this theme of the Holy Spirit is going to keep appearing. You're going to see the, this outpouring of, of tongues, of an utterance in another language that the speaker didn't know. You're going to see it three more times in the book of Acts. You're going to hear about prophetesses and groups of prophets, and you're going to hear about the Spirit leading missionaries to do certain things and go certain places and not go other places. So, we'll get to talk about it a lot more. So, you're going to have unanswered questions. You're going to have, but, 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 we won't cover it all today. Okay? So, but what can we say about prophecy in the few minutes I have remaining? So, first I want to say what it doesn't mean and what I don't mean by it. Right? So first, the obvious, obvious one is, it does not mean that all believers hold the authoritative office of prophet so that the things that we say or the revelations that we believe we give, right, are the inspired words of God or should be canonized in Scripture. Right? Very few people believe that, though some do and act like it. But that's not what we believe, right? So, as I said again, the office of the prophet is held by Jesus and Jesus alone. And he is given that authority of, to reveal scripture to the apostles and to the apostles alone. Number two, another important point. And this is where my friend Dan's little benediction on me will, will perhaps be fulfilled. So the second point is the event of Pentecost and the prophetic gift of tongues is not meant to establish a paradigm for Christian experience. Rather, it's an event that Peter explains for us is the fulfillment of the prophecy of Joel, and it attests to the fact that Jesus is the Messiah who alone can pour out that Holy Spirit on his people and alone fulfill all those prophecies of the Hebrew Scriptures, right? And it gives the account of that inauguration, that opening of this new age, of this new covenant. But it doesn't set out a pattern for personal conversion, or the experience of a second blessing that then therefore needs to be set out and sought by all believers. I don't think it sets out that pattern. Okay, I'm going to give you a couple reasons for that. I don't want you to take my word for it. I want you to keep your finger in the text. So, just a question. If a second blessing Pentecost experience of speaking in tongues is to be normative for all believers then wouldn't verses 2 and 3 also be normative? Acts 2 and 3 says, And suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty, a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each of them. Okay? If you're going to argue that this is a paradigm for personal experience and the need for a second Pentecost in your life, you also... It's inconsistent to also not argue for, well, we should also experience fire coming down and resting on our heads and loud rushing wind. Why would you pick one and not the other? Additionally, it's striking that in the remaining two dozen or more conversions mentioned in the book of Acts after this point, there is not a single <coughs> exhortation to wait for the Holy Spirit. He tells that to the apostles in the beginning, wait until you're clothed with power from on high. Never again is that instruction given to a believer to wait for another coming of the Holy Spirit. Okay? That this is a pivotal time of history. The closing of an old system and the beginning of the new is also signified by this very apocalyptic language, right? In verse 19 and 20, he says, And I will show wonders in the heavens above and signs on the earth below blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord, the great and magnificent day. Now, sometimes we, we try to fit perfect, right, literal concrete. Where, when is the moon turned to blood? Oh, that's, I know what that is, right? That's a solar eclipse or a, a lunar eclipse. We saw one of those just a few days ago, right? And you try to place it somewhere. Well, it's apocalyptic language. It's symbolic. So I think what this is speaking to is the turning of the ages, of the, the destroying and the un, an overturning of an old system and an old temple. 
and the ushering in of a, of a new temple, right? So in 70 AD, the Jewish temple was destroyed, never to be built again, or it has not yet been built again. And so I believe this is a prophetic picture symbolizing that as well as symbolizing a future apocalyptic time. But it just further emphasizes that this is something significant, we might say, sal- like historical, salvific thing that happened once. So in Luke's perspective, I'm arguing, Pentecost is first of all a climactic salvation historical event, not a paradigm for personal experience. So probably most of us, because I know our tradition, are nodding. Amen. Amen. Right? So because of this, some will therefore argue that the manifestations of the prophetic are no longer present or valid today. Right? They would say they were necessary for the inauguration of this new covenant age, but now that we have a completed canon, right? We have revelation of God's word, we no longer need the prophetic. Right? They simply attested to Jesus and the apostles. Jesus and the apostles are no longer here. We don't need the prophetic to attest and validate them anymore. So the argument goes. The problem is, if you keep your finger in the text, that's not what it's saying here in Acts 2. And this is where I want to share a, a quote from D.A. Carson. D.A. Carson, right, uh, a rather conservative Bible teacher and theologian, uh, teaches at Trinity Evangelical Seminary, never been confused for a Pentecostal in his life, I don't think, um, though I don't know him personally. But listen to this. He also argues that this is a one-time historical event, but look what he goes on to say. He says, nothing I have said should be taken to mean that for Luke, tongue speaking, because it has primarily salvation historical functions, is necessary, necessarily forever past. Charismatics have erred in trying to read an individualizing paradigm into material not concerned to provide one. But non-charismatics have often been content to delineate the function of tongues where they appear in Acts. Remember, you just stick it right there. That's where it belongs, and it stays there, right? Without adequate reflection on the fact that for Luke, the Spirit does not simply inaugurate the New Age and then disappear. Rather, he characterizes that New Age. You see the difference there? The very different thing is, oh, it's happened, it's done, or... It begins, and it's unleashed. Okay. Now let's, let's see, what, what's, what are the reasons for believing that? So he's saying the prophetic gifts are not simply given to confirm and testify to the ministry of Jesus and the apostles. Right? They do do that. But they also testify to the fact that the new covenant has been inaugurated. It has been begun. In fact... This text argues, and and Peter, I believe, shows that the prophetic is actually one of the central aspects that makes the new covenant distinct from the old. So under the old covenant, God dealt primarily with his people, right, through mediators, through appointed and called leaders, the prophets, the priests, and the kings, right? And they were the anointed ones. They were the ones that had the Holy Spirit, right? We saw it with Moses, right? Moses, the anointed prophet with the Spirit. And that picture of he gave that Spirit to these 70 other men, okay? There was this separation. There was this, the mediators, that we couldn't go directly to God. Is that still the case? Do we still live like it's the case? Right? No. Throughout the, the Hebrew Scriptures, you see again and again the prophecies, Right? I will put my spirit in my people. I will write my law on their hearts. I will come and dwell among them. That is the new covenant. That's what it means. We don't have mediators. We don't have big P prophets. It's Jesus. And the experience of receiving God's word, hearing his voice, and living it out and speaking it is now each of our responsibility. We don't have priests to mediate. Right? No, we are invited to come into the Holy of Holies. 
because of Jesus. We don't have kings that govern our consciences and tell us what is right and wrong and what our calling is to do in life, and, right? We're not some cult where they, they govern every th- of our decisions. No, under King Jesus, each of us is responsible for our own life, our own decisions. That central aspect of the new covenant is that we have access to this Holy Spirit and to the prophetic. One last point to drive that in. Look further ahead in Peter's sermon to Acts chapter 2, verse 38 and 39. Lest you still think this promise is not for us. And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise, right, this gift of the Holy Spirit, this promise is for you and for your children and for all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. Has he called you to himself? The promise is for you. And, I mean, I don't know. Like We, we pick our favorite verses, right? In our tradition, we tend to like verse 21. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Right? We want that promise. We believe that promise. Why don't we also believe in the last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Let's believe both those promises. So, as I mentioned before, right, we don't have time to talk through all of this and to give a comprehensive definition. And, and even as I look at my notes and the, the time, I wonder how much is worthwhile sharing today. I'll read 1 Corinthians 14. And it just says this. And this is, I think, a clearest picture and, and just simple definition of what I think New Testament prophecy can look like. 1 Corinthians 14.3 just says this, the one who prophesies speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. It doesn't sound that scary, right? Speaks to people for their upbuilding and encouragement and consolation. And I believe many of you do that. And then you go ahead in 1 Corinthians 14 to verse 24, it says this, but if all prophesy and an unbeliever or outsider enters, he is convicted by all. He is called to account by all. The secrets of his heart are disclosed. And so, falling on his face, he will worship God and declare that God is really among you. Have you experienced that? I've, I've heard so many testimonies of, of God showing up in someone's life. Maybe it's some of your testimony of how you came to Christ as someone speaking to you in a way that drove God's word deep into your heart, that, that applied it not in a general way, but in an absolutely specific way. Are you hungry for that for yourself and for others? I know I am. So I, um, I want to play a short video. It's about three minutes or so. I helped make this video on a mission trip to Ethiopia several years ago. And we went to investigate stories that we were hearing of a movement of, of thousands and thousands of disciples and thousands of churches being planted, particularly of, of Muslims coming to faith in Jesus. And I, you, you've probably, if you've read mission literature, you hear about, oh, there's these visions that, that Muslim people are having of Jesus. And it's leading them to come to faith in Christ. And, and so this was actually a gentleman, I was one of the guys behind the camera, um, filming this story and his testimony. But I want you to notice just a, just a couple things here as we, as we land and, and clarify what this looks like. And so he's having, he has a vision, which is one of the things that the, the Joel passage says will we'll be a part of this new covenant age. He has a vision. But the vision does not save him. And the vision does not reveal the gospel to him. The vision makes him ask the question. The vision drives him to hear the gospel. The gospel comes from the word. Okay? So notice, there is both a prophetic revealing and then a proclamation of the word. And then 
Watch what happens in his life. And notice his smile as you watch this. His face is, is blurred out because of, of security, uh, but you can still see his smile. He's got the joy of the Lord. So let's watch this. My name is Muhammad. And I was a Muslim. And then I was reading the Quran. I did not know that Jesus is a saver. And then I was praying in the mosque. I saw a vision. Uh, some kind of God bleeding, I saw. No one uh, could answer me or, or interpret for me. And then I went to the church myself. And they were preaching that Jesus was a saver. And then they asked us if someone wants to accept Jesus Christ as his own, his own saver. And then I stood up. And then I became a follower of Jesus. And then from that day, I started to witness. I was witnessing to anyone I see. If someone doesn't believe in Jesus, he cannot inherit the kingdom of God. So I started to tell this. And then when I started to preach about Jesus, and then they started to beat me. And then I decided until death. And I, I said, I cannot be away from Jesus. And then I was uh, put in jail, and uh, still many people accept Jesus Christ. And they, they beat me a lot. In Jimma, about in this, in this city, in Jimma, I have lost my conscience for five minutes about. And then they boxed me here on my neck. Hmm? And then they beat me by a stick. They, they thought that I was dead. But after five minutes, I just rushed up. I started to preach. When I go, when I go to them, I go to them with love. And then I tell them that I love them. And then I tell that God loves them. When you believe in Jesus, everyone hates you. But God loves you. This is wonderful. Isn't that a powerful video? So just in closing, in this story, of Pentecost, there's three groups of people, okay? There are those that are in, in that inner group of, of Christ followers where the Holy Spirit falls on them. They were waiting for that Holy Spirit, and it falls on them, and they began speaking in these different languages, proclaiming the praises of God. That's the first group. There's a second group that's standing on the outside listening to these praises and saying, what's going on? This is amazing. But they're inquiring. They want to know, what is this? And then there's a third group that is probably standing a little farther back, right? And they're mocking. Ha, these guys, they're drunk. These guys are crazy. This isn't from God. This is something else. This is, this, this is mental instability. This is intoxication. This is not the Holy Spirit. So I just ask, what, what group do you relate to most this morning? I'm not saying what group you're in, but what group do you relate to most this morning? If you're a believer, right, you have the Holy Spirit. I believe that, without a doubt. And you have, therefore, access to these promises that we've been reading this morning. But you still might feel like you're on the outside looking in saying, ah, I don't understand this. What's going on? Right? Or maybe you were raised in a tradition that you were taught to fear these kind of gifts and even mocked those that practiced them. Now, I agree. If you watch certain uh, Christian television stations or shows, 
there are things worth mocking and because it's funny. There's some really silly things that go on. We can be we can we can say that. But so I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about more the kind of mocking or judgment that keeps us from asking God to fulfill these things in our lives. Okay? So wherever we are this morning, and even if you're outside of of Christ, even if you're looking and you're like, I'm not, I'm not sure if I, I believe in this Jesus, but I might if I experience this kind of power. I'd invite you to, to talk. There's a little prayer corner in the back. I invite you to seek prayer, to ask God to reveal himself to you. So let's ask God together to move in our hearts, to move us closer to that center place where we're really living out these promises, right? How do you obey a promise, right? How do we live out the promise? And you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you and you will be my witnesses, right? That, that's a central thesis verse of this book. It's not a command. It's not like me saying to my kids, you will clean your room, right? right? I, I, I'm not making a prediction, I'm giving a command, right? That's not what this is. This actually is a promise for us, his people. You will receive power from on high, and you will be my witnesses. So how do we live that out? Well, it's simple, right? You, you live out a promise by believing it, by embracing it, and by beginning to walk in faith and in light of those promises. So as we pray and the worship team comes up, let's, let's begin to walk in faith and live out our trust in these promises. Oh, Lord Jesus, uh, you are that great high priest, that great prophet, and our eternal king. And uh, you have poured out the deluge, the, the torrent of your spirit and your presence on your people once and for all. And we, we don't want to stand on the outside. We don't want to uh, walk in unbelief of these promises that we've read this morning. We want to walk in belief and full conviction of these promises and take little steps of faith believing them and trusting. So come, Holy Spirit, fill us with your power. Make us your witnesses to the nations. In Jesus' name, amen.